Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Every Square Inch. I hope everyone's doing well. I'm recovering from a couple days sick in bed, so if you hear that in my voice, that's why. Um, I'm coming to us today with a bit of a cold take. Uh, Personally, I believe our culture needs less hot takes and more cold takes. It seems to me that our instant gratification society that is addicted to novelty um, produces commentators who are always in a rush to be the first to opine before the um, insatiable news cycle kind of moves on and their take won't matter anymore. Um, There's just not much room anymore for contemplation and uh, thoughtfulness and patience, at least not in the popular culture. I know um, I know that's still the case in, in academics, but anyway, we're just so quick to comment, and I think we suffer for it. So today I want to talk about the Super Bowl halftime show. Now, that was only a few weeks ago, but at the pace of our society, it seems like ages. And there were several requests for me to immediately comment on it, but I intentionally chose to wait uh, because I think the debate on this and, and what the debate uncovers Uh, deserves more thoughtful consideration. Now, when I say debate, I'm not talking about the obvious one between secular and religious cultures. Um, Secular society loved it. Religious people hated it. Same old story. What you need to know is that even within Christian culture, even conservative Christian culture, there is a great debate here. I would say the line is more of a generational thing. If you are roughly 40 and above, then you probably can't understand how any Christian would ever affirm what was on display during the halftime show. But the reality is is that many of the rising generation of Christians, so millennials and Gen Z, view things differently. And I think the halftime show is a great opportunity for us to analyze the changing views of sexuality and female empowerment and things like this. So let me try to do that for us. For those living under a rock, this year's halftime show featured Shakira and J-Lo, scantily clad, gyrating every inch of their bodies in an overly suggestive and sexualized fashion in front of an audience of over 100 million viewers. Now, uh, the conservative critique is not hard to imagine, so I won't linger there for long. It It was disgraceful. Um, it represents the degradation of our culture and so forth. Um, you know, sites that were once unthinkable are now on display during our most watched cultural event. This is terrible. Not hard to write that take. The competing interpretation is more complex. So let me take my time here to help us understand not just how our culture viewed the halftime show, but how many younger Christians did as well. And if you're an older conservative, uh, my challenge to you is to really listen here, if for no other reason than to understand the perspective of the rising generation. Now, in the end, I'm going to argue that the halftime show crossed the line of decency, but I, I want to be charitable, as charitable as I can to the other perspective before I critique it. Um, so let me try that. First and foremost, there was a cultural significance to the moment that we failed to appreciate. The Super Bowl was in Miami the hub of Hispanic and Latin American culture in our country. And they chose two iconic Latino females to perform, which is not a coincidence at all. Um, Not only this, but they gave them the freedom 
to perform in a way that fully displayed their culture. Now, we Anglo-Americans might um, be appalled at the sight of booty shaking and hips gyrating, but you need to know that this is the nature of Latin American dance. Um, I don't know if you've ever visited a Hispanic or Latino culture, but if you have, then I bet you quickly noticed uh, the revealing fashion and expressiveness of their bodies. I'm not I'm not just talking about in dance. I'm talking about the very way they interact with each other that may be interpreted by outsiders as incredibly flirtatious and evocative. So those of us from a more modest culture visit their culture, and it feels incredibly sexualized and suggestive. But to them, it is incredibly normal. So what you need to understand is that to some... What was on display during the halftime show was merely Latin American culture and dance in all of its beauty and glory. And the reason why that's important to note is because normative American culture in the eyes of more traditional cultures is deeply provocative and offensive even. And I'm not talking about more extreme forms of sexualization that are taking place in our culture like some of the billboards I saw in Manhattan a couple weeks ago where I was just – shocked that that was on public display. I'm talking about the stuff we take for granted, yoga pants and sports bras and skirts and bathing suits and so forth. If someone from a Middle Eastern or African culture walked into just a normal American gym, they would be just as appalled as many Americans were over the halftime show. Now, if your response is, yeah, but this is America and our Super Bowl should be appropriate for our culture, Well, the reality is that the Hispanic population is by far the largest growing demographic in America, and the culture of Miami, where the Super Bowl was held, feels far more like the halftime show than American suburbia. So my point is that there was definitely a cultural element to this that is, I think, going underappreciated. But there's more to it than that, which leads to the bigger narrative shift that we are seeing in our country, one that absolutely is impacting our churches as well. And it's a narrative that challenges the way we have historically viewed the female body, um, female strength, female independence and empowerment and all these things. Now, before you dismiss this as liberal feminism taking over, there is a helpful critique here for Christian culture. Femininity has long been enslaved by conservative Christianity. And I'm not talking about the Puritans, okay? I'm talking about more recent things like um, the purity culture of evangelicalism. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going, I, I'm not going to talk about the purity's culture, purity culture's negative impact on sex and sexuality. Um, suffice to say, in an attempt to preserve the dignity of sex, this movement undermined the beauty and glory of sex. Sex became embarrassing, awkward, taboo, shameful, and, and so forth. Uh, but biblically speaking, sex is one of God's greatest and most glorious gifts. So when a book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, uh, makes Christians blush, then you know something's off. So anyway, I am going off on a tangent here. Another topic for another day. For the purpose of this topic, what the purity movement did to females is unwittingly place the burden of chastity upon their shoulders, assuming that the allure of their bodies was the underlying problem when it comes to the issues of purity. I was once preaching through the book of Mark, 
And I came to that fascinating passage where Jesus says to the Pharisees, there is nothing outside a person that can defile them. You see, the Pharisees view defilement as external things we come in contact with. But Jesus turns things inwardly. He goes on to say to them, for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, um, deceit, sensuality, um, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He just lists all of these vices. He says, all these things come from within and it is they that defile a person. So Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, who were so good at avoiding external impurities, that the true problem was within. So anyway, I was studying that passage and simultaneously having a conversation with someone about the new fad of women wearing these workout pants, these yoga pants, and and their argument to me followed kind of the predictable narrative of the evangelical purity culture, which is this. Men are different. By different, read helpless Neanderthals who can't control themselves in the presence of visual stimulation. So men are different. So Christian women, in order not to cause their brothers to stumble, should refrain from wearing yoga pants. Same same line of reasoning, different article of clothing. <laughs> and in response to that conversation, um, I wrote an article that ended up getting a lot of attention entitled, it is not yoga pants that defiles a man. <laughs> I like that title. Um, anyway, <laughs> in it, I challenge the notion that women, their bodies, their immodesty, and so forth, that that is the problem to be addressed. Yoga pants don't cause me or anybody to stumble. I cause me to stumble. The solution is not women need to stop wearing yoga pants. The solution is renouncing internal lust and taking ownership of my own holiness. And by the way, this isn't just an issue in the subculture of Christianity. If you're on the outside looking in and thinking like, you Christians are like debating yoga pants, give me a break. Um, This is a broader issue. Something the Me Too movement has exposed is the horrible way that we have blamed women for their own sexual harassment and assault. Now, you know the comments, things like, you know, what did she expect dressing like that? Uh, Or she should have known better getting drunk at a party. She She was flirting. She was asking for it. Rachel Den Hollander says, nobody blames the guy wearing a nice suit for getting robbed by saying, well, he shouldn't be dressed like that. You know, in such a sketchy area of town dressed like that, he should have known. Along the same lines, no matter what a woman is wearing, no matter how drunk or flirtatious she is, sexual assault is not her fault. Does that mean that any conversation about modesty is not warranted? Of course not. We'll get to that in a moment. But the female body is not the enemy when it comes to purity. Now back to the halftime show. Again, I'm going to argue that it crossed the line, okay? So stay with me. But let me just help you understand how many people, particularly younger uh, friends, viewed it. And they viewed it as freedom. Freedom from a cultural pressure that for so long has said the glory of female beauty is the problem. Freedom to do exactly what Adam Levine did in last year's halftime show where he appeared shirtless and flaunted his physique. 
freedom to stand on the world stage and say, this is my body. It's beautiful. It's talented. It's powerful. And you, world, are going to have to deal with it. If you don't like it, it's on you to look away or change the channel. But I refuse to bear the burden of your purity or your perversion any longer. Now, you can, of course, argue with that. But I'm, I'm just trying to help those who can't conceive how anybody, especially Christians, could fathom viewing that halftime show as anything other than just pure debauchery. Now, that being said, I still had a problem with it. <laughs> I hope I have demonstrated that I understand the other side of the argument. And it is true that it is not yoga pants or halftime shows that defiles a person. And yet there has to be a cultural standard of moral public decency. And if that halftime show doesn't qualify as indecent, then I don't know what does outside of pornography itself. The stripper pole, uh, the close-up of J-Lo's crotch as she just thrusts it. I, I don't necessarily know how to define the line, but the line was crossed. I feel, I feel a little bit like uh, Supreme Court Justice Potter uh, Stewart, when the court was debating the threshold between art and obscenity, and he concluded that you can't necessarily define the difference between art and porn, but he said, I know it when I see it. And for me, in my Christian worldview, that halftime show was too much. I understand that many don't follow my Christian worldview, but I would strongly suggest that those who do share my worldview, stand against what was on display during that show, particularly now more than ever. Again, I hope I've demonstrated that I understand the perspective of those who view the show as a demonstration of freedom and empowerment, but I would argue that it's only bondage in the opposite direction. The irony of the feminist movement is that it has traded one bondage for another. Whether the female body is hidden by fundamentalism or flaunted by progressivism, the message is still the same, objectification. Whether the female body is treated as an object that society must hide or an object that society must flaunt, it's still treating it as an object, which is its fatal flaw. Females are not bodies. They are persons. What some view as empowerment, I view as the new frontier of enslavement, a capitulation to the age-old subjugation of women as worth nothing more than what their bodies can deliver. I have four sons. Now, I'm smart enough to know that they're leaving the room during the halftime show. Um, I don't know what's coming, but I know they ain't watching it. Um, but if I didn't, if they were in that room, I couldn't imagine them watching that display in any other way than these images are here for my consumption. There is no way they would watch that and leave with an empowering view of women. Now, I don't have a daughter, but I couldn't imagine raising one in a culture that celebrates that definition of beauty, freedom, and empowerment. Shakira is 43. J-Lo is 50. And so, you know, the op-eds are being written. Wow, such, such courage and confidence for these ladies at their age to get out there and 
um, unashamedly shake it. You go, girl. But they fail to leave out the you know, personal trainers, personal dietitians, the cosmetic surgeries, and whatever else these ladies implore to look half their age. If that's what women have to keep up with, if, if you're supposed to look like that at 43 and 50 in order to find significance in this world, then good luck. It's the burdened women of our society, not the lustful men, that left me so troubled by that halftime show. How can you compete with that standard? So ladies, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you have to live in this pressurized culture of unobtainable objectification. I can't imagine what that must be like. So what's the way forward? Um, you know, we critique it all we want. What's the best pathway forward? I, now I know this is going to come as a surprise to no one, but I think the Christian worldview offers it. Fundamentally, the Bible views women as image bearers of God. Their identity is not rooted in appearance, but in their design, which means every single female is glorious. However, at the same time, the Bible does recognize the unique glory of the female body. And it is a glory that certainly has its role in creation. I'm all for cultural styles and fashion. But, and this is the key, the fullness of that glory is only meant to be unveiled, discovered, and enjoyed within the safe confines of the marital covenant. It is a precious and vulnerable glory to be shared only with one who has pledged themselves to you unto death, who has covenanted with you as a person, not because of your body, but as a person by the vows of unconditional love. Now, anytime I talk like this, I know it can be incredibly shame-producing for those with um, promiscuity that they regret. So let me be clear that in Jesus, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You are as clean and as righteous as Jesus. Okay, perhaps a concluding word of application to Christians in particular who share my worldview, a word to both men and women, to men. The critique of the purity culture is a good one that needs to be heeded. It is not a Super Bowl halftime show that defiles you. Beautiful women are not your problem. You are your problem. When Jesus talks about sexual lust, he doesn't say if a woman causes you to sin. He says if your eye causes you to sin. He doesn't say make the woman cover up. He says gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. He's speaking with hyperbole there for those not familiar with um, Jesus' teaching. Not literally gouge out your eye and cut off your hand, but that it's your problem that you have to address. So you, not her, must bear the burden of your holiness. And so yes, she is free to wear what she wants without fear of your lust and certainly not your assault. But to women, be careful how you define the freedom that is yours. The Bible does speak a lot about modesty, but you will notice that when it speaks of modesty, it's not in the arena of men and their insatiable lust. It's about you discovering who you are. 
It's about defining you in terms more significant than your external appearance, instead by your internal nobility. Now, how that plays out in clothing and fashion and modesty, that's a discussion for you and your discipleship. It's not for me to define that. I know, here's what I know. I know there's a balance between the bland uniform of fundamentalism that suppresses femininity and the brazen lewdness of secular culture that prostitutes femininity. Between those two extremes, there's a lot of room and a lot of grace. So, to our culture, to our secular culture, to my millennial and Gen Z Christian friends, I get the argument. I get the critique. May I humbly suggest that what was on display during the halftime show is not the empowerment you seek. Instead, what you seek is found in God. In a God who says, you are glorious, you are beautiful, you are powerful, you are noble, not because of your body, but because you are mine. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another episode of Every Square Inch.